the neighbors across the street, my mom had told them, and I remember they were talking and they came and told my, I, I, I remember, like I said, I was seven years old, but I believe they told us. And I was like, okay. I didn't see him that often, but you know, and, and, and he didn't have an impact on my life back then, but there's events that happened in more recently that, that are connected to that. But at the time I, I maybe I didn't understand what that meant. Obviously, you know what it it passes but the the impact it has in somebody's life it's not always evident at the onset that's clint rowe welcome to the interesting humans podcast Hey everyone, welcome to Interesting Humans. Glad you're here. Question, what really are the qualities of a good man today? Is it toughness, grit, courage? Is it the reliability of the one who comes home after a long day at the office, even if that office is down the hall or in the basement, earns the money that pays bills and then expects dinner to be on the table? Is it simply the man who takes out the trash? What sorts of exchanges are men and women making today in the day-to-day -day bargaining of marriages and partnerships, and how are they changing? What role models do we have of good men in today's Instagram-worthy world? I started this podcast as a way to capture pieces of extraordinary conversations with ordinary people. I don't travel in the same circles as Joe Rogan, so the discussions I have are with friends and colleagues and acquaintances who lead seemingly ordinary lives, yet they often yield extraordinary wisdom. These people share insights that carry universal weight. A couple weeks ago, I had just such a conversation. Clint Rowe, a colleague who appears in today's episode, shared some things going on in his life and his past and I shared some things going on in my life. During the conversation, Clint revealed that he grew up one of three kids in Jackson, Michigan, in a single-parent household led by his mom. In today's episode, Clint wonders about the impact of growing up without a dad, nor close male role models on him, his 26-year failed marriage, and on his kids. As a single dad today, he has reflected on how to convey what he believes are the true core qualities of good men and how to be that to his two sons and daughter, and in today's meme-driven society. Clinton isn't holding himself up as some paradigm of a great man. In fact, some might think he has some antiquated ideas about what men should be today. In our conversation, Clint reflects on his experiences in the male-driven military, the failures and triumphs in his marriage, and in his parenting, and he's come up with a story about what he thinks being a good man is about. In 1990, Robert, the poet Robert Bly wrote a New York Times best-selling book about men. It was called Iron John. It was immensely popular. I want to read the first paragraph of the original preface. Bly says, We are living at an important and fruitful moment now, for it is clear to men that the images of adult manhood given by the popular culture are worn out. A man can no longer depend on them. By the time a man is 35, he knows that the images of the right man, the tough man, the true man, which he received in high school, do not work in life. 
Such a man is open to new visions about what a man is or could be. What Bly wrote more than 30 years ago is again appropriate. I believe that aside from a few numbskulls, I think being a man is being a tough guy and treating women as objects instead of equals, a lot of men are confused about how to be. The images I grew up with, the commercials for the Marlboro Man, the Archie Bunkers, the Hulk Hogan's, the James Bonds, those don't work anymore. Nor do the men expressing their more feminine sides. This confusion coincides with a cultural shift that impacts both men and women. Men are confused about their roles in families, in partnerships, as parents, and in the workplace. Today is the first of what I hope will be more conversations about men and women and their interdependent relationships in this changing world. Clint tells his story openly and even gets a bit choked up at times. He reveals times he made mistakes, how numb he was to the news of his absent father's death, when he was just eight, and how a mix between old-fashioned values and a nod toward modernization has helped him find his place as a man. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Clint Rowe. Let's get to it. You have some views that we're going to explore uh, about manhood and raising men to be good boys. I'm sorry, raising boys to be good men. Um who who can contribute to society and cultivate uh, healthy relationships. So we'll get into that. Um, but I think it's important for us to learn a little bit about you so we can we can understand how you came to some um, of your your ideas. Um, so uh, you're a single dad, uh, former military, right? Correct. Um, so tell me. Tell me about your childhood. What what was your childhood like? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, uh, Christian. I really appreciate that. Um, so my childhood, I was uh, one of four children, uh, single parent home. Um, I was raised in a home uh, with my mother with uh, three siblings. The childhood, I thought, you know, was a regular childhood, just like any other. Um, my mom... I don't want to say, well, she wasn't really a nurturing mother, and uh, maybe I'll touch on that later. My mom wasn't a nurturing mother, and I've always kind of held that against her. But Hmm. when I say that, um, my mom, I don't want to say was dealt a bad hand, but she did the best she could with the hand she was dealt. I will always say that. She and I had a come to Jesus moment about a year ago, and we talked about this, and I I was frustrated about some things. But... You know, I, I was angry at her for, for a little bit, but I come to the conclusion that no parent ever gives birth to a child and says, you know what, I'm going to screw this child's life up and I'm going to make their life miserable. Life happens and, you know, things go down paths and this and that happens, which over time creates the product that you are. You know, there's 100%. just nobody ever goes into a, a, a uh, having a child with, I'm going to screw the child's life up. And I don't mean my life was screwed up. Um, I had a lot of uh, struggles through life. Yeah. But I mean, it's how you, it's how you attack it, how you handle it, how you, I mean, you can be defeated or you can just look at it and you can be, you know, try, try to make the best of it. And I feel that's what I've done, but yeah. Um, single parent childhood, uh, mom worked. Uh, I, brothers, I, sisters, uh, older brother, older sister and a younger sister. Okay. Um, 
I mean, it was just a typical, I mean, we weren't Warden June Cleaver. We weren't the Brady Bunch, but um, very, I don't want to say very competitive household, but I, I, I distinctly remember it's just a snapshot of how our childhood was. My mom would go to the grocery store and she'd come home and put groceries on the table and it was a pack of hyenas to a kill. It was like that every time. And it's <laughs> fun memory. And maybe other people can relate to that, but um, that's just how it was. It was just like was, literally you guys tearing at the groceries, get yes. digging into what was there. Yes, absolutely. But um, I know my mom struggled and I know she probably had nights where she probably thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how this is going to work, but she made it work. Um, there are events in life that happen later on down the road again, that um, I questioned why she did things, but um, later on in life, I'm in my fifties now, and it took over the last few years to realize that 40 years ago, she did the best she could. I didn't realize it at the time, but now I know that she did the best she could. Of course, none of us do. I, yeah, right. I, to that point, I think it takes, it takes some seasoning in our lives to realize that, uh, our parents did the best they could, even if it wasn't necessarily what we wanted or, or needed, um, what were, if you think back about it, Clint, what were some of the best parts of your childhood? Um, I can say without a doubt, I always looked forward to seeing my grandparents come to the house. I always did. And it was kind of funny. You know, we, my mom always assigned us chores when we were young and, um, my grandparents, uh, obviously, they both passed. Or all four of my grandparents have passed, but um, I always look forward to my grandparents. I, for those of my friends that will hear this, I have a grand. My grandfather, he was the exact image of Colonel Sanders. The, oh, the the white beard, yeah, uh, that, yeah, all that. Gets. I always the one thing that I always it always brightened me was seeing my grandparents. My grandma would come over and sometimes we, you know, my mom would make us do chores and my grandma would always come over and do our chores for us. And that for some reason I remember that to this day. She would always have a pack of double mint gum in her purse and she would always tear one in half and give us a piece of gum. That that'll stick with me till, you know, to the day I die, but um, a bright spot is always seeing my grandparents. Going to see both sets of grandparents, but they just brought they just to me, they were a typical grandparent. And what's funny is my first remembrance of my grandfather was when he was the age that I am right now. He always mm -hmm. wore the suit with the vest. He had the hat on. He had a bow tie. He was a minister. Uh, he was a preacher. And I see me. I wear jeans with holes in the knees. I've got a T-shirt. You know, I just see it's total two different generations. But it just it hit me a little uh, about, a, about six months ago. I realized, wow. I'm at the age where I first remember seeing my grandfather and, uh, and that, that really put, that put a couple things in perspective for me, but yeah, all my grandparents always had fun with my grandparents, you know, were around. Um, like I said, at home, we, we, I don't want to say we struggled, but we just lived the life. We, we got by, you know, we had mm -hmm. you know, siblings. We, we fought, we, we played together. We fought together. I mean, just probably typical childhood stuff. Were you aware, were, were you aware when you were uh, a child that your mom or that your life was a little bit of a struggle or you, you mentioned right at the outset, you thought you had a pretty normal childhood. At the time I thought, well, I was always jealous of the friends in school that had the nice clothes. Cause I, I mean, we, I wore hand-me-downs, 
Um, I was always jealous, kind of got ridiculed at a young age with from kids because they kind of picked up on that because, you know, my mom didn't make a lot of money. But again, she had she did what she did. Sometimes we'd go to Goodwill to get clothes, you know, and some people figured some of the, my friends, school friends figured that out and they, they were kind of rough on us. But I mean, hey, now if you go to the Salvation Army or Goodwill or any of those places now, the college kids are there buying stuff up i mean it's in vogue it's absolutely in vogue but i remember in the mid 70s the late 70s early 80s man not so much man right these were different right. times back then right right um so do you mind if i ask uh your father where where was he um that's kind of a touchy subject so okay we don't have to go there no, no, i'm happy to uh because this like i said th this all plays into a part of the end state that that this that I want to get out there. Um, so my father, um, uh, father died in a. He was a truck driver. He died in a crash in 1978. I believe it was 1978. It was shortly around the time that Elvis died. That's why I remember that. I so uh, my older brother, my older sister, and I. I mean, to me. He was our father. My he and my mom were divorced at the time. Mm -hmm. but, um, but there's there's a huge part of my life that, and we'll touch on that later. There's a huge part of my life that is involved with that. But yeah, um, died when I was seven years old. I'll never forget that I was across the street at a can or I lived in uh, Jackson, Michigan, and uh, across the street we had a little store we'd always go get candy with. And I found out when I was inside that store, and I was just like, huh, okay. Didn't see him much, but. Um, at the time, obviously being seven years old, you don't know how much of an impact that will have. How did you, how did you find out Clint? Um, if I recall correctly, the neighbors across the street, my mom had told them, and I remember they were talking and they came and told my, I, I, I remember, like I said, I was seven years old, but I believe they told us. And I was like, okay, I didn't see him that often, but you know, and, and he didn't have an impact on my life back then but there's events that happen in more recently that, that are connected to that. But at the time I, I maybe I didn't understand what that meant. Obviously, you sure. know, when it passes, but the, the impact it has in somebody's life, it's not always evident at the onset. Especially if, if he didn't have a large presence in your life day to day in your everyday. Cause that's, I mean, let's be honest, most children, most of us, when we're kids, we're just concerned about our, our day to day. What are we going to do next? What, how yeah. are we going to play? What's going to be yeah. fun? If I we recall, don't have that kind of perspective. Yeah. At the time, if I recall my brother and I, we'd always play wiffle ball and I mean, we'd throw the ball up against the bar, the garage door and that's all we would do day in and day out. And then we, we would stop, go across the street and get a little, we had, we would collect pop bottles to turn in to, to go get candy. We did that all the time. And yeah. that was one of those days we were going over there probably to buy, you know, two cent Jolly Ranchers or something like that. And that's when I found out and I thought, Oh, well, okay. Well, I haven't seen him in a while. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But again, I was seven years old. What, what did I know? Or I'm sorry. I was, I was eight years old. I'm sorry. What did, what did I know? Right. Well, um, so could you talk a little bit? What, what was your, if you can recall that, what was your relationship with your father like at that time? What? Well, um, I guess 
you know, I'll cover that later. Uh, there was nothing to my, uh, we'll cover this later, but there's a huge piece of that, that, um, that came out later on in my life, but okay. it was really non-existent. My brother is f- uh, three and a, three and a half years older than myself. So he was really close. He, I mean, and my older sister, she was c- close me. I was, I mean, I was eight, you know, right. and, and I'm not saying that it can't impact an eight year old, but you know, for a couple of years, I'd never seen him. I hadn't seen him. So I'm like, oh, okay. You know, my mom is the parental figure in the house and that's just how it is. Right. Right. So let's talk about your mom. Um, obviously she was the central parental figure in your life. Tell me, tell us about your mom. What was your mom like as a person? Um, oh, wow. Uh, we grew up in a uh, very strong Christian home. Uh, uh, strong church of church. We went to the church of God. We went religiously. Uh, Wednesdays, we always did Bible study on Wednesdays at church. We went Sunday morning and we went Sunday night. And that's all that's, I mean, forever in my childhood, that's a huge part of my childhood. I just grew up in a Christian home. My mom's a strong Christian woman to this day. Um, my mom lives out in California right now. And to this day, she is very strong in her convictions on Christianity. And uh, as my grandfather was a uh, minister, uh, right. uh, and uh, that was, it was in, you know, I don't know what, if what your knowledge of the religion is, but Church of God, there's, it's a very baptizing, anointing, speaking in tongues, you know, dancing in the aisles. And I've, I've always struggled with that. And, you know, to this day, my mom and I have spirited debates, if you will, not too often, but I have my own thoughts about it. But um, my mom's a very strong Christian woman for, if nothing, I credit her for be, just having strong convictions in her faith. Mm-hmm. Did, I'm just curious about this popped into my head, this question, because there, as we grow up, there are a lot of different frameworks that form our concepts of, of our lives and the roles so growing up, you grew up in a, a single parent household with your mom as the major figure, but you just talked about religion. Did the church have any precepts about the roles of men and women that you were aware of? Were, were men certain types of people and were women certain types of people? Maybe, maybe it's not something you recall. Uh, but well, well I, one thing I... I in the in that religion or in that piece of it, you know, men lead the church. It's well, it was always said that men lead the church. Women, I guess, there's scripture. There's scripture that says women, you know, women aren't to be leaders in church. I can't remember exactly, and I don't want to say anything wrong or get anybody upset over that, please. But, um, yeah. But at that time, uh, I really didn't have understanding. It really didn't didn't really bug me about how the situation was with our family life within the church. Um, but there were strong men. I was always, even to this day, I'm jealous. Even I, I recall situations back then, even in church where I see men with their kids. And, um, I, I remember, you know, cause it was very family oriented. They try to make it very family oriented. And to this day, it bugs me. I get a little emotional when I see a grown man hug his son, you know, um, I've never had that. And that's always been a, um, it's always been a rough piece. I always, I'm, I'm not the greatest nurturing individual. Um, my kids have allowed that to be a simple thing for me. They're more inviting. Um, 
but I've always struggled with that. Um, on Father's Day, it's not that it's a struggle for me, but when I see a, a, a say a guy my age hugging his father, that's a struggle for me. I've never uh, had a male figure in my life. Yeah. So yeah, I I get it. That's interesting. I mean, that is something, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. That is something about in today's role, this idea of men being affectionate, but you know, between, uh, father and son, um, my dad and I weren't, uh, particularly, I didn't have the best relationship with my father either. And, um, I tell you what, I mean, I just thinking about, I saw a good friend of mine last night, he and his wife for, for dinner. And I always hug my friends, my guy friends, Mm -hmm. you know, the ones I'm closest to, I, I do not hesitate to give them. And there is this thing about showing emotion, particularly affection and it being weak, uh, among men. That's, that's one of the things I want, we'll address a little bit in this is today's roles, how we're supposed to, to be in that. But I have a lot of compassion for you, Clint, to not grow up, to, to grow up with not getting a hug from your dad. I imagine that that has left a little bit of a little hole in your, in your heart. It, it may have, and, and, and maybe I'm naive to it, but there's probably now that I think about there's events that have happened in my life that were probably affected by the fact that I haven't had a father. Um, but back in the seventies and eighties men, well, times are different nowadays. Yeah. I mean, like you right. said, you hug your male friends. That's an awesome thing. But back in the seventies and eighties, men tried to be manly men, you know, the more masculine right. and it wasn't, it wasn't pr- as predominant as it is nowadays. I have no problem hugging a man. I, I, I mean, even with my kids, my, like I told you, my kids make it so easy for me. my sons will come up to me and give me a hug. And my daughter, my daughter makes it so easy because I'm not the greatest nurturing, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, and, and I feel it, it warms my heart. And I mean that with, I mean that with a hundred percent honesty, it warms my heart that my kids do that because I, you know, my mom was not to come up, come up the person that you could come up to and hug and she'd say, I love you. I knew she did. She just wasn't right. an effective person. And I don't say that to, to, to have a negative connotation to her parental skills. I mean, but your she, mom had to be both. Your mom had to be father and mother and had to be strong. And I can't imagine how challenging that was. You said so 1980s ish that you were growing up and yeah, late seven, mid, mid, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. 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 And I, I was just thinking, um, about, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie planes, trains and automobiles, Steve Martin and John Candy. Remember? And they were in the, in the hotel and, uh, they were, and had to, because there was only one bed, they're sleeping in the same bed together and the whole, those aren't pillows. And then they, you know, how about them bears? I mean, that's, yeah, that was yeah. typical. That that was prototypical of the of how men were supposed to to engage in yeah. that. And I agree. There is a there has been a movement toward uh, a more, f- if I will, se- a feminine side of men. I'm actually reading. Um, it's okay. A, to uh, emotion. It's okay for absolutely. men to show now. There actually was a famous book. Um, I'm actually reading it now. I don't know. It's called Iron John um, by the poet Robert Bly. It came out in 1990, and it it was as applicable in 1990 as it is today. And he talks about the the role of men and how it changed in 
um, in parallel to the roles of women, fifties uh, and sixties and seventies, how those things kind of revolutionary revolutionized. And whereas women have, um, have grown, um, I'd say into much higher beings uh, over the decades in terms of their uh, presence in our society. Um, men have not, in my view, there it's, I think it's a really confusing time to be a man um, and, and what we're supposed to, to do and be and how we're supposed to interact. But um, yeah, it, it just, uh, it, it's really an interesting time um, for men and women. And I don't, I, I do not want to take anything away from how women have been mistreated by misogynists and, and, you know, men, how we've led society and it's, it's absolutely wrong. Um, it isn't the way it is. So let me get, get back to your, to your childhood a little bit. You, um, you obviously had friends you hung out with guys that you hung out with, right? Or was it mostly your family? Did you hang out with your sibs? Um, when I was younger, it was mostly with the family. I had friends every once in a while. I, I, I never had any you know, tight knit friends. I did not really develop close friendships with other guys until I, I want to say the till eighth grade ish. I yeah. uh, became friends with a buddy of mine. He and I, I'm, we're, we've been best friends or very close friends since eighth grade. And, um, uh, he's one of the few people, if any, that I still made in contact from high school. I graduated from, uh, I graduated from high school there in Ann Arbor and I got a close, um, he and I still, uh, we talk weekly pretty much. We text back and forth and, uh, he gives me a lot of advice, a life advice, very smart individual. And I really appreciate, uh, his, his impact on my life, but I didn't really start having male friends, if you will, like close friends until probably middle school or a junior high, if you will. Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense too. Um, did you, <clears throat> um, so you, I assume you carry, you know, you carry this into teenagehood and you go through middle school and into high school. Did you think to, you know, probably started dating a little bit in high school? Um, did you start to form, what, what were some of the ideas that you had about men and women when you started engaging with, uh, with women about men's roles and women's roles? Like, I'll give you an example, Clint, um, I always have open doors for women, um, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a door to a, you know, a home or a building or a business or a car door. I would, I remember my first dates, I would run around the side of the car and open that door, um, for a woman and hold it open for, it's just something I've always done kind of chivalrous view that yeah. kind of 1950s man, um, but I'm wondering, you know, did you have any impressions when you started dating about the role of men and women? No, um, it's just I, I maybe I was a product of what I saw on TV. Um, my mom, I never saw her openly date people till I was probably seventh grade. And hindsight, I mean, I understand that she's a human. Everybody, you know. Sometimes that's that's a necessary part of life, but I just saw what she did. But she kind of kept it secret, not secretive, but it wasn't open till till later on. Um, but no, as far as dating, you know, in eighth grade, you like, hey, you know, you'd ask somebody, you'd pass back in the day, we would make little notes, you know, hey, you right. want to talk with me, or maybe we'll go, you know, with the little check boxes, like, yes, go out with me, yes, no, 
did that. Yeah. Did. And it's cliche to you and me. That's probably cliche because you see it on right. TV. The younger, the kids nowadays are probably thinking, oh, that's so silly. But that's what we did. We totally did that. Yeah, we even, we even folded them up into little footballs, little footballs. Oh, we could yeah. toss them or kick them to the, right? Absolutely. But um, no, I just, you know, when you get that age, boys go through body changes, girls go through body changes. You see somebody, oh, they're pretty. And, you know, and then maybe you talk with your friends and you send your friend over there to ask if, you know. Right. You know, stuff like that. Would Hey, would you like to maybe go talk with him or would you go out with him? Just simplistic. But that's back before cell phones, before, you know, oh, God, it sounds so cliche. Sounded, but, yeah, you and I were children back before a lot of that existed. So you had to do face to face or you had to send your courier over there to yep. do your dirty work for you. I remember. So there was a girl that I adored in eighth grade, I think. And I sent my friend over to ask her if she would go out with me. He came back to me. Guess what he said? What's that? She said, fuck off. Oh my gosh. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. That crushed me. And the funny thing was, is we became really good friends and we became really good friends in high school and we joked about it. We actually became really good friends in high school and we joked about it. Um, yeah, she thought I was a nut job at the time, but yeah, this, I, I remember that, like asking your buddy to go over and say, oh, ask her if she'd dance with me or if she'd go out with me, right? Christian, we knew nothing back then. That's the thing. Totally. We knew everything, but yet we knew nothing. I'm a staunch yep. believer that because, you know, your parents aren't going to tell you anything. You're like, because you're at that age, just leave me alone. Just, I, exactly. I know you leave me alone. But no, um, I'd always, I was, I was a very shy kid. To this day, I'm still a little shy. I, you know, I. I struggle, but like I said, I'm 51 years old now. Sometimes if things have changed, but back then, even through 20s and 30s, I've always been a very, very shy person. Very shy. So stuff like that was very difficult for me. And if something, if I, if it were to develop into a relationship, it would be because the girl who I thought was cute in eighth grade or ninth grade is because maybe she passed me and no, and I'm like, oh, okay, she's pretty cute. Maybe we can go to the, you know, the the dance in the gym. Yeah. At, you know, or go Friday. to the mall, like or we could meet at the mall. mall, or go skating. We went roller yeah. skating. Yeah. Oh, and or to the arcade. Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. Yeah. It was. It did seem like a simpler time. There were fewer things to decide and to navigate around that time. Um. So you went to high school here. Did you go to Pioneer? What to Huron? Okay. I was uh, a river. sorry about that. I am Pioneer's <laughs> a rival there. I was um, a. River. Or I am and then, so you uh, graduated high school. Did you go to college? Um, right after ho- high school, I was just kind of in a rut. I, um, my mom always said uh, I hung around the wrong people, and she's not wrong. Uh, I, I hung. Ar- I was a good kid who hung around people that weren't good. If I'm being honest, I, I mean, I wasn't a career criminal, but I did some things, and I'm not proud of, but probably. I was, I was very influ- not influential, but easily influenced by easily influenced by. Yeah, I, I had some friends that, you know, we probably did some things we shouldn't have done, or something you would frown upon a child if they did. 
I know my mom's yeah. probably going to hear this, so but you know, I probably did some shit, some some shady things that she's probably aware of now. But even today, my kids tell me things that they did in high school. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. But now no, that's nothing. You should have seen what we did, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I I've always said I was a good kid. I just hung around bad people. But anyways, after high school, <clears throat> didn't go to college. I I hung around. Uh, I remember one night I got an argument with my mom, and I moved out of the house when I was seventeen. This was before, was shortly before I graduated. Um, because again, I knew more than she did. She wasn't going to tell me stuff that I didn't know. She didn't right. tell. She wasn't going to tell me anything because I knew it. I remember I walked out the front door. I slammed the door so hard, the window broke on the door, and I never looked back. Um, hindsight, um, if one of my kids did that, well, you know, it, if one of my kids did that, I wouldn't really know what to do. And I know my mom probably didn't know what to do. And I know my mom has always told me to this day, she said, um, uh, I took steps in life that that helped me along the way. But she thought I was just going to be a career, you know, just had nothing going on for me. If you had talked to me. 35, yeah, about 30, 35 years ago, you would not believe that the product that's talking to you right now is what it is. All right. Well, yeah. we're, I mean, it's hard to see at the time. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry for the conflict that I think that we had a lot of conflict in my household, um, too, mostly with my sister. Uh, my sister was a lot for my parents to handle. And, okay. um, you know, now I'm going through some stuff and examining my, my childhood. I survived by staying small. I watched what happened to my sister. She also left in her teenage years, moved out. I didn't see her for years. And I said, nope, that's not me. I'm going to survive. And so I got really small. I was a really, really good kid uh, for, a, for a long time, not to disappoint my parents. That was the well, thing. You, you bring up an interesting point, and we'll touch on this later. So you consciously, in your mind, thought, I'm not going to be that person or I'm not going to wasn't be conscious. Person. No, it wasn't. It was subconscious, but it was, it definitely, now I can look back on it and say, Oh yeah, that was a survival mechanism that I kicked, okay. that kicked into gear for me because uh, my sister did what you did. She fought with my parents. I just have one older sister, uh, six years older than I am. And they fought like crazy. And finally she left and, um, left the house. And I, that must have scared the crap out of me. So I hunkered down and I was the best. I didn't cause a single problem for my kids, except my parents, except, well, one time I went on a joy ride with a buddy, stole uh, my friend's sister's car and we had an accident and whole big court case. And, you know, I got put on probation and all that. But, you know, to my dad's credit, he just said, oh, at least you're getting to know how the court system works firsthand. Um, it's but inter I'm interested that you, that was a subconscious, uh, decision yeah. I you have that, that really interests me. That's like I said, cause that has an impact on some things later on, but I, I didn't, I didn't know if things like that was, if that would be a subconscious decision or something you like, you know what, I am not going to have that happen to me. And then you try to live your life accordingly. Well, I just knew that, you know, you don't piss off my parents, uh, because yeah. you get hit or you get yelled no. at, or you get kicked out of the house. I'm, so when you when you left the house and slammed the door, broke the window, where the hell were you going? Um, I went to a buddy's house. Um, he had a buddy of mine, which my mom just did never did not think was a great influence on my life. But uh, we were friends through church, but we weren't the greatest 
examples of that, but he had a mom and dad and they understood my situation. So I kind of full moved into their basement. I had a couple pairs of clothes and she would wash my clothes and I lived in their basement and then I had my license and I had a car. So I would drive to school. <clears throat> and um, So they were okay. The parents were okay with you living there. They understood. I, they, I think on the grand scheme, they understood my situation and yeah. they're like, you know what, let's just give them a chance. And and to this day, they may not know, but I'm inter- eternally grateful. I'm the mom. She passed away a few years ago, but the dad, I'm friends with him on Facebook. And I've, I'll always be eternally grateful because they gave me an opportunity that not a lot of people would do. Right. You know, her, their son, um, he and I, I, we haven't talked in years. He, we, he was not a good influence on me. I got in trouble. And first time I ever went to jail was with him, <laughs> with him. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that kind of started a tone, but right after high school that happened and I was just in a rut for about six months. I was in a rut. Didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I eventually moved in with, um, and a friend through church, I moved in with him and wasn't the greatest. And again, constantly just like going to work, coming home, going to work, coming home, just the complacency thing. And I had to make a decision, do something. What kind of work were you doing then? So admire on Carpenter Road back when mm-hmm. I was um, back when I was 18, they had a video rental store in there. If you walk on the right hand oh, side yeah. of the street, into a right face they got the the pharmacy ish that used to be a video rental store and i worked there i worked overnight there making three dollars and 35 cents an hour whoa minimum wage three thirty five that doesn't an hour. go very far right right it's 1989 and i had to pay my buddy rent or to live there and i was paying him like 100 bucks a month which right you know people would kill to have that type of situation now but i was paying i don't know 100 150 bucks a month but i was just working eight you know, I was working as much as I could, but I was working overnight because nobody wanted to at the video rental store at Meyer. So for you younger kids, yes, Meyer used to sell or used to rent out videos. So you must have felt like you had to grow up in a hurry. You were, I didn't know what growing up meant at the time. I was just like, well, okay. Everybody else did this. Why can't I do it? I mean, I had a few. I didn't have any bills except, you know, pay my buddy the rent and I had gas. And of course, I never paid my insurance. So I didn't have insurance on my car, right. you know. So, I mean, I, I had two or three bills, gas and pay my buddy's rent. That's all I had at the time. And I thought, man, this is it's kind of boring, but um, that's where things started. Were you talking with your mom when you were living with your buddy or were you guys not talking? No, we, um, we'd see each other at church or something like that. If I, as I recall, we'd see each other in church and I know she was probably disappointed me and disappointed in me. And rightfully so I wasn't the easiest. Like you said, if you knew me 35 years ago, 40 years ago, you would be surprised that the product you see right here is that same human. Um, I know she was disappointed in some of the decisions I made and I didn't make the life the easiest on her, but I mean, I, I don't know what to say other than I, I'm just like, well, I'm an adult now, or I am an adult now, and you're not going to tell me what to do. What about your sibs? Did you see and talk with them? My brother was, I think he was just in a senior year in college. My little, my older sister, she was out doing her thing. I, we saw each other occasionally. My younger sister still lived at home with my mom. So, I mean, I really, it didn't, my siblings and I, we aren't the tightest. Um, 
And, and I think that's just a product of the household I lived in. And just, yeah. my mom, like I said, my mom was not very nurturing. And so we kind of, we kind of um, hide our insecurities of emotions with humor or making fun of them. But it's just my brother's the king of doing that. My brother, when anything, and he'll probably yell at me for saying this, but anytime things get uncomfortable, he goes with comedy or he tries to be right. funny. And I get that because um, my brother's had struggles too. And I, and I totally understand that. But we're not yeah. a very tight-knit family, if, if I'm being honest. So, all right. So you didn't go to college after high school, right? And you opened the door a little bit. I'm going to step in through it. You said you spent some time in jail. And, well, it was just overnight because um, it was just, uh, there were times where I'd go to Cedar Point and I'd take my car and bald tires and all, we'd be doing 120 mile an hour on the Ohio turnpike and <laughs> over for no insurance and of course, I never showed, and then they put out a warrant for my arrest, and uh, got caught one time speeding. Yep, I spent an evening in jail. Good, it wasn't wasn't more than that. You um, you mentioned earlier your former military. When did that ca- happen? So when I was working at Meyer, I'll I'll start that part off, and this is where things start getting you know life starts happening. I was dating, uh, well, I was dating then. Who turned the woman who turned into be my who ended up being my uh, wife or ex wife at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, again had I didn't know what I was going to do with life. I was bored. I was in a rut. Nothing was working, and so my my best friend from high school, the one that I mentioned earlier, he and I he was home on Christmas Exodus because when the military or when the army back then would do in the training pipeline during Christmas Exodus, they just shut down the training areas for a couple of weeks back then they did. So he was home on leave. Wow. And he, okay. and, I, and, he and I sat at my ex's parents table, got drunk and talked about life. Again, my mom's going to hear this and I'm always respectful. This was when? Uh, this is probably December, 1988. Okay. He goes, Clint, what do you got going on in life? I was like, eh, nothing. He says, look, he was in the army at the time. He was in his train, the training pipeline. He says, look, you join the army, you get three square meals, you get a bed to sleep in, you make decent money. You got insurance, you got life insurance, you got medical insurance. What, what are you doing right now? You're struggling. So that night I went to bed, woke up the next morning, went straight to the recruiter and I joined the army. Wow. Just, and I signed a contract that next day. I signed a contract the next day for, um, so army basic was in, right. Uh, not, go ahead. I'm trying to think where, uh, it's not in, not in Texas. Is it there's uh, several, there's several places that do basic training? I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I, uh, okay. I uh, told my, my girlfriend at the time, I said, I joined the army. I need to make some of my life. And she was okay with the decision. She's like, well, we got to do something. My ex, she had a young, young child at the time. Uh, my, mm-hmm. he's my oldest son and he and I, I mean, life has, it, we'll get into that, but, uh, he, he's, he's the, I'm the only person beside his grandfather that's been a male figure in his life, but he was mm-hmm. nine months old when I met her. Um, so she, myself, I think my mom was at, it's that back at Metro when you were allowed to go to the terminal. Mm-hmm. Valentine's Day, 1989. I flew to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then mm. then I was. That's when the yeah. I was 19. I had just turned 19 the month before. 
So that's when I joined the army, left everybody, left everything behind. I thought, you know what, I've got to make some, and I, I, I thought about it. My best, like I said, my best friend had a huge impact on that. And, um, probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. Hmm. Um, as far as changing the trajectory of my life. Right. Well, and that's something I want to talk about because, uh, you and I both, uh, so I'm also former military. I was actually out. I was out by the time you were going in, but, um, I'm curious about your experience, uh, basic training. And then, uh, when you got out, like about, you know, your experience, your roles, because it's obviously a very male dominated men dominated, uh, sector of our society a little bit i mean i'll give it to you in a nutshell i joined well when i signed the contract i guess they had some quotas to fill and so the lead recruiter looked at me and says all right so you're doing this how would you like to jump out of airplanes i was like all right sure so i signed a contract to to uh, go to the air uh the jump school down in fort benning georgia i left did my training it was uh I think it was nine weeks at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, graduated there, did my individual advanced individual training in communications at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And then after that, I went to jump school, Fort Benning, Georgia. Wow. But um, in between all that, there's a huge where things really start changing. Um, Had corresponded with my girlfriend at the time. We'd, we wrote letters. When I was in basic training, she wrote letters every single day. And when I say every single day, I don't say that sarcastically. Literally every day I had mail. I was known as the guy that got mail every day. And I was so appreciative of that. Um, so uh, go through basic training. She comes down to my basic training graduation. I see her. Everything's great. My mom was there. My little sister was there because I thought at that time my mom thought, okay, he's making something of his life. I know. I thought I made my mom proud. I'm sure I did. Uh, I go to the advanced individual training in Georgia. Do that. That was, I think, 13 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I go to uh, the airborne school. I take a bus from uh, Columbus, Columbus, Georgia, or I'm sorry, from uh, Fort Benning. I take a from Fort Gordon, Georgia to Fort Benning, Georgia, Fort Benning, Georgia. I took a bus and I did three week airborne school. So I learned how to jump out of airplanes in three weeks. So after that, um, I get 10 days of leave before my first duty station. My first duty station was Fort Lewis, Washington. Love that place. Um, but in between then I got 10 days to go, to go home. But if you back up to September, this, I graduated, I went in July, I graduated. So in August, I got to go home for 10 days. So I go home, my girlfriend meets me at the airport. We go home. Everything's great. I saw my mom, I think, and I, I stayed with her at her place with her parents. Um, time's up. So I go out to Fort Lewis, Washington. I'm there a month. And then on September 19th, 1989, I get a phone call. It is my future mother-in-law. She goes, Clint, I have somebody that needs to talk to you. And it was my ex, it was my ex at the time. I said, hey, what's going on? Everything okay? She goes, no, everything's not okay. So I said, what's wrong? She goes, I'm pregnant. And so I so I start like I start counting my fingers on my hand as you, you know, so I'm thinking, okay. I said, okay, doesn't matter. We can get through this. I said, when are you due? 
She said, right now. Oh. So I had to go to my commander to get permission to go on emergency leave. I went home for two weeks. My, I found out I was a father the day my daughter was born. Hmm. And uh, I said, okay, we can do this. So I get permission from my commander to go on emergency leave to go home. I go home. My ex's father picks me up at the airport. That was rough. <laughs> we drove home. I wanted to go to the hospital there at uh, St. Joe's. I want to go to the hospital. He says, no, I think it's better. You go get a good night's sleep. You've been traveling all day. Cause I was, I flew from Seattle to uh, Detroit. Right. You, you know, get up in the morning and go see her. Get up in the morning. He had a brand new Ford F-150. He let me drive it. I drove it to St. Joe's. I left the lights on. He hadn't had that truck a month and I'd already killed the battery, but that's, he, he pestered me about that for years. It was always funny, but I, I walked into the room. I could hear my daughter crying when I was down the hall. I, I walked in there and my girlfriend at the time, she was crying because she knew I was coming. And I remember hearing my daughter's, she was screaming really, really loud. Just, you know, she was hungry or something. And I just, that's the first time I found out the day before I was going to be a father. And then that's the first time I saw my daughter. Mm -hmm. So now it's me, my girlfriend, my daughter, and at the time, her son. <clears throat> um, so her son from a previous marriage. Previous relationship. Previous relationship. Um, so I had gone home on leave, and I thought, wow, like she'd gained a little bit of weight. Christian, I was so naive. Uh, she had tried to hide. You were how me. old? 19? I was, I was 19 at the time. Yeah. I thought she had gained weight, but one thing I did know, you never comment on a woman's weight. And I thought, okay, well, she's getting you know, bigger, no big deal. Um, well, she was pregnant and she was scared to tell me. And afterwards we had talked down the road and she was just so scared that I was going to leave her. And that's why she didn't, she, I mean, she, but then she got to a point where she had to say something. So, well, I remember walking up to her and, you know, I gave her a hug and gave her a kiss and I held my daughter for the first time. And I said, well, we need to get married. Uh, cause that's what you do. You take responsibility. I thought, you know, I'll take responsibility for this and we'll get married because that's what you do. So my grandfather was an ordained minister. I was on leave for 14 days. Stephanie, no, my daughter was born on the 19th of September. We got married 10 days later on 29 September, 1989. So, uh, so that, that was the basis of a lot of things that happened later on in life. That was, that was the basis. So I was, so basically 10 days later, I had a wife and two kids and Ten it was time to, to be a, right. And you were a man, like it was time to step up to the plate and be a man. Right? But the thing is though, I knew everything. No worries. This is a piece of cake. We got this. Yeah. It's going to be a little difficult. I know how to handle things. This is going to be easy. That's my mindset at the time. Christian, I'm well, 50 years old and there's so much that I don't know. I, back, then I knew, back then I knew everything. Right. Clint, that's wisdom. That's, that's what happens from life experience and, and, uh, and aging. I mean, yeah, you were a, a 19 year old with his hair on fire thinking you were, you had the world in your, in your pocket. Uh, that's immaturity. Heck yeah. You know, I was, I was 22 when my mom died and, 
I would say I was super immature then. I was probably like a 16-year-old. I, I always have felt a little bit behind, and I feel like like you, wisdom comes uh, through life experience. Oh, um, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. I would say I have my, my son. My son Soren is an old soul. I would say he is wiser than his years. Uh, for a young man, he seems to have have that presence of somebody older. But, you know, I me and uh, my peers, us, you know, the guys I grew up with in high school, boy, were we an immature lot. You know, it just took life experience. Oh, absolutely. So. And, you know, the army, I, I, I had to be an adult in the army. And then, as, oh, being married with, you know, my both my my two youngest children have two children and my oldest child has one children. And I have four grandchildren under the age of two right now. And I feel, and I think my kids don't sometimes don't understand that I understand what they're going through a little bit, not to the extent the sleepless nights they're going through that right now. And I kind of sit back and like, ah, I remember those Been days. There. I remember yeah. those days. But yeah. So, um, so you had to go back to 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 Seattle to Washington. I had to go back to Washington because did go she go back. with you? She could. Did you guys get? Oh, you couldn't get married housing. You couldn't do that. Not at that point. So we had to wait for it. I went back. I put my name on the list for housing. Um, the following April, she was able to come out. We we brought her out there. We got into military housing. And that's where the journey began. Uh, we went to Washington. Once my tour was up over there, I was stationed in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, at, uh, the unit I was in had a, a, a manning change. And so they moved me up to a, a unit in Fairbanks, Alaska. So I lived three years in Alaska. Again, some of the best With times. With a wife and two kids. Wife and two kids. Um, I always tell people Alaska is the most beautiful part of the country you'll ever see. But Mother Nature is ruthless and she will kill you in a heartbeat. Hmm. I love that's one thing I remember. It's, and they have mosquitoes the size of uh, the biggest mosquitoes you've ever seen in your life. So Alaska rolls around. Uh, we get pregnant and my youngest son is born. So my my youngest son is a native Alaskan. Um, so I'm going through life here. I've got three kids. Um, the oldest is, I think jo uh, he was around about seven years old. So, you know, I'm being the father. I'm still a very young father. I'm sure. 25 years old and I've got a seven-year-old child, you yeah. know, and I don't know. I, you know, I, I always tell people that uh, in, in raising our children, my ex-wife at the time, she was an awesome mother. I will never take that away from her. She was the most nurturing. She had skills that I wish my mom had when mm -hmm. the children were young. As a 19-year-old father, I didn't, I mean, okay, I'm holding this little human here, I. I didn't know, but as time progressed and as my children got older, I can have logical conversations with them. We, I could reason with them. That's when the script started to flip. My ex, I think she struggled when they got older. She didn't know how to deal with the, maybe, uh, their the talking back and the yes. independence. Yeah. She struggled with that. Whereas I, that was more natural with me, but the roles reverse. I, I struggled at, with the nurturing part as a father where she was brilliant at it. And to this day, there's situations that have happened, but to this day, you know, she was, I will never take that away from her. She was a great mother to her children. Well, she is a, well, she was a great mother to her children. Um, I didn't 
start really, you know, because my daughter, she's very sports oriented. And I, I joke with my son-in-law that, you know, you're welcome because my daughter, she can, she can do, you know, she can, she knows how to do a parlay on a three team bet. And she knows how to look at the over under on a team. She looks at like a, in a baseball game, she knows, you know, well, they need to get this pitch. This guy needs to throw this pitch at this point. My daughter, because that's, that's how I connected with my daughter. Cause I didn't mm-hmm. have that thing. And the only thing I always, I always grew up in sports and I didn't know how to connect with my daughter. So, and I know my ex used to get upset about that. We would watch Monday night football together. We would watch mm-hmm. the Pistons basketball. We'd watch Tigers baseball. And that's how I connected with my daughter because I didn't know anything else. How old was she then when you were doing that? <sighs> Probably she really started doing that when, uh, Probably when we came back here, probably she was probably 10, 12 was when she started doing that. So that's, I mean, to this day, my daughter, I mean, she probably knows more about sports than I do. And I, I, I mean, but she's really good with it. But, but that's how I, on a, on a psych, psychological level, that's how I connected with her. Right or wrong. I didn't so, know how, to, I didn't know how to be a nurturing right. father. Well, you didn't have a father model. You didn't have someone to model being a dad so what did you use well let me go back i talked to you i talked to you about my father so uh, back in um 1991 i was stationed out in washington um the gulf war was starting to happen and i was in a unit that was um we were asked to be put on standby i never went over there at the time but i was asked we were we had our bags packed they were at the unit just get the call whenever it was we just head over there so one night or one Saturday afternoon, my mom called me. She goes, well, I need to have a talk with you, Clint. I said, okay. Basically what she said was the guy that died back in 1978 uh, was not my father. Um, Whoa. I cried for three days. I was a grown man. Oh, I'm 21 year old. I was crying. She did that because she had held the secret, which again, I always go back. My mom made mistakes, but she, I don't, at no point did she ever do anything intently to try to ruin my life. That had a huge impact on my life because I've held a grudge against her for almost 30 years because of that phone call. Um, well, I imagine that would be crushing. It was. I, I cried and I cried and I thought, well, and I felt sorry for myself. I did. I felt sorry for myself. Um, she thought if something were happen, I were to get shot, I were to get captured, I would need to know my family history. And she says, well, it's not him. I said, okay. And uh, yeah, so I've struggled with that over the years. So throw that into the mix. And yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, that, that was a struggle. I struggled with that. I was 21 years old at the time. That was 30 years did ago. She, did she identify your father? Yes. Um, I have reached out to the individual and, uh, <laughs> I talked to him and we're friends on Facebook to this day, but he told me, he says, yeah, Clint, he goes, Clint, it's possible. And so I thought, okay, we can have a conversation here. Right. You know, I said, I don't want money. I don't want anything. I just need to know. He goes, yeah, it's possible. I said, okay, okay, done deal. Hmm. So, uh, again, you are, um, you're a 25 year old father of three. Uh, well, at the, your, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, could, what did you, how did you figure out how to be a dad, how to be a man? I watched people. I listened to conversations men had. I saw the interactions men had with their children. 
that's all I had. I'd watch TV. Right. You know, you catch bits here and there. I was always jealous of the people that I was always jealous of the families that had that tight knit relationship. Cause sure. I knew I tried to portray that, but I knew it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think the military was a good place to be in that respect? Because it is a very cohesive, uh, environment. Mo- uh, model. I think the military was the best thing for me at that time. I think that's mm-hmm. why I, done so well now later in life because I had that experience in the military. It was very disciplined. It was organized. If you knew, and you, if you've been there in a while, you, you, if you've been there for a while, you could argue that. Cause you, I mean, you know, that one too, yes. but, um, but it was disciplined. You know, you, if there's a problem, you tackle it, you deal with it head on. You don't, you know, cause my mindset was always just turn the other way and it'll go away, you know, but mm. the military did help. Oh my gosh, I, I 100% believe the military did help. Um, maybe subconsciously it did. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, I get that too. I, I always think back about my military experience, particularly boot camp, and I learned how much you can get done in a minute oh, yeah. or, or two minutes when you have a drill instructor right in your face screaming at you to open up your footlocker or get ready for... Uh, you know, for chow call or, or, you know, get out on the deck, how quickly you get dressed and and move. And how proficient you could be at living. Absolutely. Hours of sleep for weeks on end. Sure. So you mentioned this, that you think that's one of the things that the military gets right in, in creating these. Absolutely. Um, What about, I have my opinion on the way they do things now, but back then I totally 100% agree with that. Okay, well, that's something I want to address because there has been a lot of stuff written over the years that's come to light about military culture regarding men and women, um, how women are treated, even mistreated in the military. And I don't know if you want to speak negatively of the military, but, but you know, what does the military culture get wrong about men and women? Um, because it fosters, oh. you know, some people, some people might see this kind of John Wayne you know, caricature of, of men, uh, or the, the Rambo, you know, caricature of men, but what do they get wrong? Well, that's a, that's a good thing you bring up because I was always taught in the military leadership, leadership, the military's terminology is the ability to influence others, to accomplish the mission, the ability to influence people to accomplish the mission. Um, and sometimes people are thrust upon leadership positions that may not be ready for it. And so with that, you've got other factors involved. I've, there's a huge ego element involved. You know, I've got to prove my manliness. Or if you're a woman, you've got to, you feel that you may have to defeat some stereotypes. And so you go above and beyond and maybe portray a persona that isn't really who you are. Um, I was never the strong leader. Um, to this day, I'm not really a, a strong leader, but it was always influence others to the ability to influence others to accomplish the mission. So get people to want to do the job. And, um, and now leadership, it's defined differently. It's just the ability to get others to think for themselves, to get them, you know, to, to think, yeah, to think for themselves and think. And, uh, yeah, in the military, they don't want you thinking for yourself. They, they don't want, want that. Right. You've got parameters. They want you to stay within those left right. and right boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. We even had a we had a guy in um actually in boot camp. It reminds me of um 
movie Full Metal Jacket, where uh, with Matthew Modine, where the yeah. one of the guys in boot camp went uh, haywire. But we had a guy, and this scared me. We had a guy in our boot camp who refused to get off his footlocker, just sat there and was screaming at the drill instructor, ended up disappearing. Um, so, but but you know, in the meantime, back to the subject. I'm just curious. This this interplay between the role of women and the role of men in in the military and what it fosters and what it means for people who get out of the military in terms of how they see their roles the gender roles well i i I think the roles of men and women in the military are totally different that's just my opinion men are a lot of men are ego driven i feel that men are ego driven and uh I hate to say, but I think women are more sensical in, in, in their roles, but men just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of ego driven leadership is a lot of ego driven. You do have people that are great leaders, right. but I think a lot of it is based on the, on ego. And that's sometimes that's when leadership, it goes sour a little bit when they let their ego take place. Well, I believe that that is, um, that's one of the problems with society in men in particular is, is being ego driven, uh, that, that ego is the center of, uh, or the catalyst, uh, for, for behavior. Um, okay. So we've covered a lot of your past. Um, I don't, you know, what happened, um, what happened after the military you were in for how long? Well, I was in for 26 years. So I got out of active duty after 13 years. Um, I was stationed in D.C. Um, I was about a mile away from the Pentagon when the well, Pentagon was hit. But that's not a, I, I mean, I don't, I don't say that for anything. Just um, that was one of the turning points in my life when it's like, wow, things just are starting to get real. And, you know, you see the the history, you see when 9-11 happened. And then there was just, I'm getting older. My kids are getting older. And you just got married. I was married. I got mm-hmm. off active duty. Uh, when I out processed, I I'm like, you know what, let's stay in the national guard. Uh, I want to keep my retirement. I'd done 13 years. I didn't want to waste that. So I got in the national guard. I came home. I'm living here in Michigan. I didn't, I got a job as an overnight supervisor at target. I didn't like it. So I wanted to go back to the military. So I found a job. It's, it was an active guard and reserve program. So I was active duty in the national guard and mm-hmm. I finished up I get the same benefits. I finished up my career. I did 26 years, five months, and 11 days in the Army. And I'm drawing a pension now. Yeah, I, I have awesome. it to Um, The military probably is what kept, not kept, them. probably is what kept our marriage together. It forced us to think on our own. We didn't have a mom and a dad right there to to help us. We had to figure things sure. out. When bad, you had to figure it out. Um, Fast forward a few years ago, I eventually... Uh, life happened, things happened and, uh, I, I got divorced and I tell people back then I didn't realize it. In fact, tomorrow will be six months to, or six months, six years to the day that my divorce was final. Um, mm-hmm. divorce. How long a, were you married? How long were you guys married? A shade over 26 years. Wow. Divorce, it just, the divorce destroyed me. But when I say that, Christian, I had a huge impact on why that divorce happened. Um, the biggest thing, um, and it probably has to do with the way I was as a father, I became complacent. And when the divorce first happened, I didn't understand. I was angry. But now 
I've been divorced six years. I understand why. Christian, I would wake up. Uh, maybe I'd go for a run. I'd go to work. I'd come home, eat dinner, fall asleep on the couch. Wash, rinse, repeat every day. Um, and I am a firm believer that I kind of pushed my marriage to the brink. And I, so I think I'm so good with my divorce now because back, I, I've come to the realization part of it was my fault. It took a lot for me to say that. My mom always said, um, you need to forgive everybody that has anything to do with it. And I used to say, no, I'm not forgiving anybody. But I have learned over time that that is the best thing. Um, just divorce. I had a pain, a physical pain in my stomach for, for six months and I liken that pain to a loaf of bread in your stomach. And that sounds silly. But every day it goes by, you take a sliver of that bread off. And that a little slice goes, off. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. And I tell and anybody that would be listening, I tell them, if you're going through a divorce, I promise you, I promise you it will get better. Um, I never thought it would. You know, looking six years forward back then, I, I thought this, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know how to pick things up. I have learned so much in the past six years from living life, from being divorced, from dating. I've learned more than I did in the first 35, 40 years of my life. I know so much more now. And that goes into what, you know, being, being a man, how a man, I didn't know how a man being in the army doesn't mean you know how to be a man, know how to, you know, that's a lot of it was being macho trying to do outdo the next person or outdo the person next to you. Um, I've learned more of the past few years of being divorced, so much more. But I tell people it gets better. It okay. gets better. I promise you. Okay, let's talk about that. That's the, that was the that's the focus of what I wanted to get to. You just yeah. said that you've learned so much more about being a man, and you succinctly talked about the Rambo macho culture of the military, the competitive nature. And I remember I experienced that too in my, um, military, <clears throat> in my, in boot camp, in my, in my, uh, my service. So let's talk about that. Okay. You, you learned, you said so much more since your divorce. So there was an awakening in terms of your, your views of, of what, it, what it is to be a man. Um, so share a little bit, uh, with that. What, what would you say is the, is the main point, the main thing that you learned in that respect? So right after I got divorced, I thought, you know what? My life sucks right now. I'm in so much pain. What I need to do, I need to start dating. Looking back, that was a horrific idea. Oh my God, it was so horrific. I hadn't healed. I hadn't given myself any time to heal, nor did I even understand that I needed, at the time, I didn't understand I needed time to heal. Um, I remember I dated somebody right after the divorce, I was dating somebody and I made the comment, and this is how immature things were, how immature I was as a man, which and I'll get into that in a little bit, but I made a comment. You act like my ex-wife. Whoa, probably not a good thing to say. Not a good thing to say. And, um, yeah. And so. And she immediately after that, we, we broke up and I didn't understand why. Um, and so I had dated off and on. And with every person that I dated, 
everybody else is exposed to different relationships. So they bring a different perspective into the relationship you are with them. Right. For all those years, I was married to the same person. And I thought, you know what? This is it. I'm going to die a miserable man. Or you go through life, you become miserable, and you just die a miserable person. Being divorced now and seeing different facets of relationships, I realized there's so much more out there, but I didn't know that at the time. I've learned so much from being more cognizant, being more aware of speaking with people, listening, being aware of you know, your surroundings, understanding things. Whereas when you were married, I felt that I didn't have to do that. Um, and so what happens was I was in a relationship with a, a, a woman that she, she was the sweetest person in the world. I, it just wasn't working for me. And so I, I broke it up. There's other things that happened, but I, I broke it up and I, I wasn't nice about it. If that makes sense. I wasn't the nicest person about it. But after that, I, I had a come to Jesus moment with relationships, with being a man, with so many things. There was a period of time where I just I had a discovery. And so and that was a excuse me, after I broke up with this person, I went back and I thought, you know what, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to make things right with the people that I've wronged. I felt at the time, this is what I needed to do. And that was, you know, during that time, I called my mom, I called friends, I called people who I felt that I had wronged. And it brought so much closure in my life. I wanted to speak with my ex, but I didn't. I've not spoken. I, we haven't spoken, I don't believe, once since the day we left the courthouse. I shot her a text once, let her know that our dog had passed away years ago. That is one thing that's kind of hovered over my head. I don't know if it's something I need to do just to get clarity, but it's part of growth. I don't know if I need that to grow anymore, but I've gone through my whole, I've gone through everything. I thought, you know, I'm going to be a better person. Um, There are things you do as a man that you take for granted. And then, you know, the woman in a relationship takes care of. Well, I, I realized over the, my marriage, I created not problems in my marriage. You know, I, I always go back. My, my, my wife at the time would say, do you want to do the dishes? In my mind, I'm thinking, well, no, I don't want to do the dishes. Now, after been through a couple of relationships, those are the things that I want to do. And it may sound silly, but because I know now that it makes them happy that they don't have to do that. I will go the extra step you know, my at the time, my, my ex would say, do you want to do the dishes? And I'll say, no. But un, I wasn't paying attention. She would have a child in the hand in one arm. She would be vacuuming with the other hand, maybe making dinner. And I was sitting on the couch, you know, watching TV. That's a horrific thing to do. And my perspective has done a 180. And my goal is when I'm in a relationship is to make it so that person is happy and they do not need to have any concerns. I want to do those things to make that person happy. And sometimes you've got to do the dishes or sometimes you've got to mop the floor. It may not seem like a masculine thing to do, but it's it, it goes so deep into helping a relationship. Small things like that, you know. I'm, I always go back. I'm a firm believer that a man, before he gets married, well, first of all, too many, well, it's different nowadays, but I got married very, very young and to be no to know what it's like to be a man at 19 I did I had no idea 
I'm 51 and I'm still learning. I told you I'm 51 and I'm still learning things. But I feel that the, like one of my one of my tenants is I believe a man, a man should live alone to learn how to wash dishes, learn how to fold laundry. I could fold a fitted sheet. My mom taught me how to fold a fitted sheet. I can do that. But these are, you know, small things like this communicate. I never communicate. My ex nor I never communicated. I'm a great, I feel like I'm a good communicator now, but it's through trial and error, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit more. What makes a good man in your view? So you just talked about not, not necessarily in a relationship, but what makes a good man period? What is a, what, you know, and I don't know if there are men you admire that we might, you know, we might know, but when you boil it down, Clint, what makes a good man? Well, I mean, if the man's in a relationship, I, I don't know that it's right to say doing what is necessary to please your significant other. I don't know that that's what makes a man. But first and foremost, you hear it every day. You hear it from therapists. You got to communicate. And I always thought, eh, it's not necessary. But, you know, having been through a few taken a lot of wisdom from relationships and other people who have communicated have taught me how to communicate. Communication is not easy, but to me, it's saying those things that normally, well, I was raised in a situation where you just shut your feelings down, you stuff them way down inside and you let them fester. And now I, you know, if I got an issue, I'll just say it. And I'm, I'm in a relationship now and it's going really good. And the reason why I think it's going good is because we tackle those issues, we communicate, and sometimes it might be awkward to say, but it always makes things easier on the back end to talk about. So the first thing a man needs to do is communicate, 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 communicate. It's so simple to say, but it's so critical. That's why mm -hmm. therapists say communicate, communicate. When I was married, um, we got mad at each other. and We went 45 days one time without talking. 45 days, Christian. Wow. And it hurts, yes. but you know, sure. you don't talk about your feelings. You stuff them down inside a bag and you, you tie them up and you throw them away. Right. But that's how, that's how I thought back then. So in that communication is not only the, the stuff where you, there is a problem. It's also the positive stuff. It's the compliments. It's the appreciation. And yes. Oh my gosh. Um, a lot of times when I'm talking, when I'm communicating now is I know there's maybe a subject that will make me squirm a little bit, but if you just take that leap, it always makes things easier on the back end. You can always, right. once you break that ice, you can always talk about, that's one thing I've learned. Sometimes it's difficult to break that ice in a communication, whether, whether it be a personal conversation or something that makes you uncomfortable or something you're afraid you're going to make your significant other upset about. If you, if you say something, you might be surprised at their reaction. Just because you think that they're going to react away doesn't mean that that's how they're going to react. So that's that is a realization that the fear is not what should motivate you. Uh, Absolutely, I think that's that's legitimate. Yeah. What other qualities would you say if you were to to build a good man? What else would you say is in there? I've always told my children, um, take care of your responsibilities. When what I say that. If you owe somebody something money, you take care of it. Don't try to dish it off or pass it off or do anything. Take care of your responsibilities. If you have a house, do what you got to do. If you, you, you know, save your money. Um, I, I think we live in a world now where too many people live month to month. And unbeknownst to them, that is a huge impact in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Living month to 
month money, obviously money is a huge impact on why marriages and relationships fail. Um, unfortunately, that was also one of the reasons why my, mar my marriage failed. Um, disagreements on money. Um, but I know how to handle that now, which is, in hindsight, it was just a simple conversation. And I couldn't do that at the time. So it sounds like what you're saying is one of the things about being a good man is to be honest and and talk about difficult things as, oh as they God. arise and owning i guess you're also saying owning your your own stuff owning your own feelings about things owning your own responsibility you know what and, and it's it's a simple too um and you might think this is trivial but washing the dishes making the bed making the house presentable treating your your significant other with respect and communicate stuff like that. I, I, I'm a huge proponent of that, but like you said, I've not always had that thought. Um, I, I've always, and to get, to get to, I don't know if you were going to get to that, but I believe that there should be some mentorship mentioned. I always wish that I'd had a mentor that I could look to when I was younger. Cause I played things, I played it by ear and I made a lot of mistakes in my relationships because well, I didn't just, have a dad. You didn't have well, a dad who could have been a mentor. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think now I've been through life enough, you know, 51 years old. I've been through a couple of relationships, a long marriage. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, I, but I know what works in a marriage. I know what doesn't work in a marriage. And, and I've always been, I have three children. All three of my kids are married. And I marvel at the fact that how they treat each other. Mm -hmm. Um, because the way they treat each other was not the way they talk to each other and treat each other was not what they saw when they grew up. And so, you know, going back to the subconscious thing with you and your sister, I was wondering, I've always wondered, do my kids subconsciously think there was no communication in that relationships? I'm going to communicate in this one. There was, this didn't happen. That didn't happen or that happened. I'm going to make sure. My, I've listened to my son and my daughter talk to their significant other, and I'm thinking, "Wow, where did they learn that?" Because it—that's mm -hmm. not how we when we when I was married. And so I've mm -hmm. always that, I've always marveled at that. Um, and what really scares what really scares me, you know, we talk about divorce. Um, you know, they say fifty percent of marriages end up in divorce, and I have three kids, so that you know, knowing that the pain I went through in a divorce, that scares me. Just for my kids' sake, it scares me. You know. Yeah, well, I again, I think there is a cultural shift, not just I've talked about this before with friends and and even on this podcast that there's a cultural shift that has occurred partly oh. I think because of COVID, but also I think we're moving into a different a different culture, a different different life now and to your point about <clears throat> about where your kids learned some of these positive behaviors in terms of their relationships, I remember growing up thinking I'm not going to be like my dad. I, I'm going to do anything I can to not be like him. Uh, even though I could say I love my father. Um, he passed in 2018. Um, I didn't want to be like him because I saw some things in him that I didn't like. I think that is a fairly natural thought or a thought process, a mindset that a lot of kids had. And, and I know there are also kids who want who say, yeah, my parents are great. I want to be like them. I'll raise, you know, and, I think we we model what we were taught, but it's interesting that your kids may may be approaching things a little bit differently. Uh, in this. do you think 
think you did you consciously say I'm not going to be like that, or did it just yeah, was it actually that was 100. Yeah, I even remember telling a friend um, and telling you know I have a couple exes, uh, telling them we have kids. I'm gonna I'm not going to raise them like my I'm going to be better than my dad uh, was. And of course, I still made mistakes. Um, you know, guilty as as anybody of making mistakes with my kids and my stepkids. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm really curious. So you have a, a really interesting perspective on this. I mean, I, you know, we, I was influenced by the 1950s in male, you know, that the, the dad who, um, thought he was doing his, a good job by getting up, going to work, earning a paycheck, being solid and steady in his job. Um, while the, the, the mother, the woman of the house, my mom, busted her ass cleaning the house all the yeah. time. Our house was always clean. She always got up and made, she always made meals for us, made dinner. It was always on the table at five 30, no matter how she felt, uh, even if she was sick, it was that dinner. And so that was kind of the model that, that I grew up in terms of, of being a man until there was, you know, a lot of fighting between my parents. Um, and it was, it was fairly confusing. And I think this time now trying to figure out going, growing up through the, uh, seventies, eighties and nineties and hearing so many different opposing views of, of manhood. There's the military version of the hero male who dominates and women have certain roles. And then there's this other version, which is more profound today or common today is this kind of sensitive feminine man who is, um, accommodating to, to a woman and who expresses his emotions. And, you know, it seems like the pendulum has swung that way. It's, it's kind of hard to know, uh, as I alluded to earlier about what is, what is a man supposed to be now? You know, there's so many different, so many things feel like they're shifting under us in terms of oh, what it takes to be a man. That shift has brought on many, many challenges, you know, things that, you know, when I remember going to my grandfather's house back in the mid seventies, early to mid seventies, and grandpa would have the paper up, the newspaper up and, you know, yeah. couldn't see anybody behind the paper, but he'd have his newspaper yep. up, eating his oatmeal, or he would be preparing for a sermon. And, you know, you don't bother him while he's preparing for a sermon, but those, I don't think that's, that's not in, well, things have changed. You don't see that yeah. often, but it was a more of a conservative approach back then. And, you know, the man right. was household a man did this the man made this decision and i remember my grandma saying telling my grandma to keep us quiet because he's got to think about he's got to read the paper he's got to prepare for a sermon but right now things are definitely there's been a huge shift in that absolutely right so if we were to listen over your shoulder to one of your conversations with your your children now that they're grown mm -hmm. about what what it takes to be a good man what would we hear? Like, do you communicate your values, these thoughts about, about manhood or about who you were in the past to them? Well, I have, one thing I have learned that I did not do when my children was younger is be totally transparent with my children. Anytime. I mean, I speak to them. I, we, no subject is unapproachable. That is one thing that maybe like I said, back in the 60s and 70s, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk about your emotions. Right. You don't talk about personal things. And I do that with my kids now. 
I'm, I'm so much more open, excuse me, than I ever was in, in any in, uh, in my marriage. That makes, and I have found doing that makes the relationship so much easier. The kids can, my kids can approach me with anything. They can say right. anything to me, anything, you know, and, and that's yeah. the first and foremost is be total transparent. I mean, uh, just, you know, even when it comes to feelings, um, I used to struggle with my kids when they were younger to say, I love you. I love them with all my heart, but just to, just to verbally say that I can do that now. Right. Because, I mean, it's important to hear that. I didn't hear that that often when I was a kid and I'm not, I'm not trying to complain about it, but I realized for my children's well being that is so important. Just mm -hmm. there's so much stake taken into the manly, you know, and you talked about the shift, but the manly, it's important that a man can show his feelings. Right. You know, and, um, and I've not been good at that. And, uh, even today I still struggle with it, but it's been easier for me. Um, when I talked right. to my, I talked to my son the other day, uh, finished up phone conversation. Love you, dad. That still hits me in the heart because I mean, it just makes me feel so good. Cause you know, like I said, I, I, I have struggled with that in the past and my, my kids have made, being a father easier. My daughter always said, dad, you're lucky. You got a daughter like me. And she's right. She's right. <laughs> she's made those unapproachable or those difficult situations or those difficult sure. conversations easy. That's a case. That's one of the, actually, I think one of the best things about being a parent is when our kids actually teach us something. But you, yes. And you don't realize it until you've incorporated something they've sure. done in your day to day. But Sure. No, um, my kids, like I said, I, I struggle with like, how do they learn to do so good? They're, I mean, they know there's going to be trials and struggles and issues, but sure, I'm, I'm proud of, I don't want to say I'm totally proud of the job I did. I'm kind of surprised that they turned out the way they did, you know, with, with, yeah. the, uh, with the parental skills that their mother and I had. Well, they made it. That's one of the great things is that you know, our kids are influenced by a lot and even beyond, oh. you know, their parents, they're influenced a lot. And, and yeah, you can be grateful that they, <clears throat> that they turned out so well. Let me ask you, what do you think? We've had a really nice conversation, been talking for almost an hour and a half about men and manhood. What do you think about the value of conversations like this? Do you have these kind of conversations with other men? Um, not as often as I would like, because I love to get other men's perspective and I don't want to hear the, the manly, like you said, you talk about the culture shift. I want to hear things that help me grow as a man, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it, like you said, I've always grown up with the conservative view of the, the man as the head of the house, you don't talk about your feelings and just being open. I've not had a lot of open conversations, but I found, I found, you know, it, it, talking about what I mentioned earlier about communication. Sometimes you just got to drop a subject and just plow headfirst into it. And sometimes it's not a taboo thing because there's other men that are probably ego driven where they're, th they don't want to say something, but if you drop a little tidbit of information, yeah. you up a great dialogue i think yeah. you and i have done that before we're you know just on some on a personal level about some personal issues and um because you never know you know one thing i've it's always i've always thought about you never criticize somebody 
the, because they act the way they do, because you never know the footsteps you, they've taken in life to get where they're at. And I, um, I know we're getting close on short on time, but one thing I wanted to mention is I had this thing about when you're a child, you're growing up, you're, you're, you're at your starting line. You're starting to grow through childhood and then into your middle teens and into adulthood. On the distant end, you see the perfect life. And when I say that, you've got the beautiful home, Warden June Cleaver, you know, type mm-hmm. scenario. You've got the two and a half car garage and you could see it right there. The picket fence, the cat, the golden retriever. Maybe you got three and a half kids. Well, you, you understand what I'm saying. You've got the perfect lifestyle. So you start marching through life. You go through life and you think, man, I got this. And then a little sniper pops up out of the bushes and takes a shot at you. And that sniper is a death in the family. Uh, maybe some a family member has got an addiction problem and whatever. Okay, that hits you. You react. It knocks you off course to get to that end point. Then you pick up your bags. You got your family and you're marching towards. You're off course a little bit. You're not getting where you were. And then... Maybe something else happens. A divorce happens and you think that's the end and it knocks you off course, but you're struggling to get to that end point. It's not going to be where you started because I don't think I would say if you pulled, I don't know if you pulled a hundred people, if they thought that their life now is what they thought it was going to be. I wonder how many people would say it's exactly what I thought it was going to be. Life impacts people and you have to react to it. You know, and that's one thing I've learned. I've reacted a lot and I've learned an awful lot over time on, on how, you know, to be a man, how to be an adult, you know, it's, it's interesting how life brings you challenges and you grow how you react to those challenges. Cause that's, I've done nothing but that over the last six years. I have, well, I, I think have, that's a credit that I have to say that's a credit to you, Clint, the kind of person you are to be dealt that, you know, a kind of blow. I'm aware that having gone through a couple of divorces myself and, and had conversations with men about what divorce means, um, even, you know, some, some Facebook groups or some pages yeah. on, on men's okay. issues, men's, you know, and how devastating uh, divorces for a man uh, often. I don't, you know, some of the, some of the popular, popular culture is how, di- how divorce is devastating for, for a woman. But it also is the men I've talked to, they're messed up for a long time. It is, it, to your point about not being healed, not being, maybe dating wasn't the right thing that you needed right. to get on your own feet for, for a while. But it's a credit to you that you took that thing that happened in your life six years ago and used it as a fulcrum to learn, uh, to grow. And, and, um, one of the things I always wondered was how long is this going to take? The one thing I realized, uh, I, I can't remember if I had a conversation with my daughter. Um, the one time I remember where I thought, you know, things are going to be okay is when my anniversary had passed. And I think I, I swear it was my daughter that reminded me, or maybe something said in conversation, my anniversary had passed three days prior. And I thought, now I can move on because I had totally forgot about the birthday, mm-hmm. the divorce. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's where I'm at now. Cause even today it's been in the last two years, the, the anniversary has passed. And I totally, I, I, I can sit there and tell you mm-hmm. to your face and I'm being hundred percent honest. I didn't remember. I, for, I totally forgot mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think that healing has pretty much, you're always going to have re- 
you know, issues, things you're going to think about, you know, memories. But I think that's where it came when I forgot about our anniversary is when I thought, I think I'm doing good now. So let me ask you this. What would you tell your 19 year old self now that you're 51 and you've learned some things about life? What will you tell a younger version of you about where you're headed? That is an amazing question, Christian. Um, If I had to say one thing, I would say stick with the plan. It's going to be okay. You know, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go, but on the backside, it's going to be great. Um. Life is rough. Life's going to deal you a crappy hand sometimes, but you're going to be resilient and you're going to be fine. Um, Everybody has struggles in life and some are, are, are deeper than others, but it's how you react to it is going to make you a better man. Um, That's if I could tell that 19 year old self, I'd grab him by the shoulder and say, you need to pay attention to what's happening, Mm -hmm. but no, things are going to be good. That's amazing. I, I think that might be a good place to put a pin in this conversation. Les, is there anything that, that you'd like to add? Anything I haven't asked you about that you think no, is important? No, not really. Just, I, I, you know, I've always won. I've always been curious. I didn't, I didn't know if there was a, my big thing is mentoring people. My, my huge thing was I got married at a very young age and I've always wondered if there's a, a need to mentor young men, you know, cause maybe and it's just, it's a small sect in the scheme of things, but just mentor young men who might've gotten married too early. You know, I'm not a licensed therapist, but I just want to let them know that, listen, to be a man, you know, you got to learn to communicate um, and do those things that you don't want to do. And, mm-hmm. and it sounds so simplistic, but I just wish I had somebody there to help me along the way. But, you know, things get better. And, mm-hmm. you know, You just got to be able to accept things that are said that aren't of the norm and be able to accept a person, a a different point of view. And I've learned that too. You got to accept things that just because you think the the way something is, doesn't mean that's how it is. So one of the, one of the parts that one of the important pieces of this podcast for me is something we talked about before we started recording was, you know, about the mission here and and we both shared that you know if we could just help one person yes uh, if somebody got something out of this whether it's a man or a woman to be honest um greater understanding so um w- how would people if somebody wanted to reach out to you say it is a 19 or 20 year old uh kid who is looking for a mentor would you be willing to have a conversation with him absolutely absolutely um like I said, my only thought is I can impart something of a little bit of knowledge that I've been through that. I, I know what doesn't work. Sure. I've learned what does work. I would love to be able to help somebody because there's, I mean, I, I wasn't happy for 26 years and I look back and I could have done things that could have made things happy for me. I could have had a great, not that I had a bad life, but I, things could have been really, really different. And maybe just have somebody impart to me knowledge of what a good marriage is or what a good life is or what it's like to be a, a man, what a man really, what it means to be a man. 
And that doesn't mean, you know, just throwing down a slab of meat and eating and just, you know, roaring because I am man. No, it's just sometimes a man gets emotional. Sometimes men have feelings and it's okay. That's one thing I've learned. It's okay to have emotions and feelings and everyone's, you know, cry if you got to. That might sound silly, but man. It, so it, how would how would you like people to reach out to you? What's the best way? Are you on Facebook or Instagram I'm or on Facebook? I'm on Instagram. Um, my email is clinton.j.row at gmail. Um, just if they have any questions. I mean, like you said, I, I am not the end all be all, but I know I've been through a little bit of life and I can possibly help somebody. If somebody wanted to talk, and that's always, you know, in, in situations where people are going through rough times of life, I may not know what you're feeling. I will never tell somebody, well, you should do this or you should feel that. I will listen. I may not be able to understand, but I will always listen. Well, I, I think that's listen. the value. I think that's the value. Even having a conversation with you know, these kind of conversations, I think there can be value in them and not that we're going to move the world or decide anything, but just to keep a dialogue going uh, for someone. Well, so yeah, People in that situation, like the divorce thing, I just wanted to tell tell my story at the time. I didn't want to say, well, yeah, I've been through that. So I understand what you're going through. You may have been through that, but you may react differently than I do. Just, I will be somebody to listen, maybe give a pointer right. here and I will never tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do. Just give them experiences. So Clint Rowe, I want to thank you for this conversation and being on, on interesting humans. You, uh, you definitely brought your a game. Uh, here today and I'm really really grateful to have a chance to get to know you better and hear your hear your story you told your story I'm really grateful I Christian I appreciate the opportunity you, you you've been a blessing I appreciate that okay that's my conversation with Clint Rowe isn't he a humble guy I'll include links in the show notes where you can find Clint if you want to reach out to him as well as a link to the Robert Bly book Iron John in case you want to find that Intro and outro music is graciously provided by Ella, who is Wilds. Uh, she has released some new music in the last couple of months, so make sure you check that out. As always, I am deeply grateful you stopped by Interesting Humans and allowed me into your ears and your head. If you ever want to reach out to me, you can find me on the interwebs on all the social media platforms as well as my website, ChristianRWard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, your colleagues, your strangers on the street, everyone. Tell them about it. It's really encouraging to keep going with uh, these conversations. And if you're so inclined, we'd love if you would write a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. So more great conversations are coming up. Thank you so much for stopping by Interesting Humans. Until soon, this is Christian Ward. Make it a great day. Thank you.